Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your stored shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. Or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. You're here listening to Southern Sense. You're on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, all the heck with it. Ah, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your host, just with the most just through your chick, Annie, along with my courageous and powerful co-host, <laughs> Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I have to remember to unmute myself, even... <laughs> After I miss a you know show or two, yeah, forget those things. <laughs> but I'm doing oh, great. I'm oh, doing well, great. 
Oh, man. Uh, if someone's giving an audio lag, if you're up on the YouTube page as well as the blog talk page, you've got to turn the speaker off on one of those pages. Otherwise, you are going to get a lag. Uh, YouTube is slightly behind blog talk radio. But I want to welcome everyone that is here listening in on blog talk radio, YouTube, Facebook, and wherever else we are. Oh, you know, talk about forgetting to do things. I'm saying that we're up live on Facebook and everything. And I forgot to move the camera <laughs> off of the show <laughs> opening onto Hello. So I don't feel I'm so here. bad now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like you moment. try to walk and shoot bubble gum at the same time. It doesn't work. <laughs> no. Nah. Oh, anyway. We've got ourselves two great guests. We've got a longtime friend of mine, Mike Cutler. I've known Mike Cutler for, oh, good Lord, 30 years now. Uh, he was an INS agent when I was a cop in New York, and he worked upstairs in the borough with the NYPD. Uh, so he is an expert. He's uh, testified before Congress and Senate on immigration issues, uh, especially on the 9-11 report and issues with 9-11. Um, he writes extensively for Front Page Magazine and several others. He has his own uh, blog talk radio show called the Mike Cutler Hour. He'll be joining us. And I love when Mike comes on, um, I just sit back and let him go. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have a few guests again. like that. <laughs> Mm. And then uh, second half of the show, we've got a new guest, uh, Quentin Kramer, who started a foundation, um, American, oh, let me make sure I get this correctly, uh, American Border Foundation, which has fundthewall.com. They are actually raising money to fund the wall. And we'll be talking about why a private organization, a nonprofit, can do that better than Congress. Uh, so we're going to have a very, very interesting show. That said... I'm a little discombobulated. So those who are watching up on YouTube and Facebook, these are my notes, all handwritten. <laughs> Double, I got five pages of handwritten notes for today's show. Nothing is organized, so <laughs> it's going to be interesting, guys. Yeah. But we start you off know, each I, every show. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say I like dedication. that. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say I like that idea of um, the public funding the wall because I, I would contribute fifty to maybe a hundred dollars to that. Forget Congress. We, the people, we can do that and do it faster. Absolutely, absolutely. Matter of fact, I found my dedication buried underneath my recipe for cranberry sauce <laughs> for Thursday. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, today's dedication is going out to uh, Chief of Detectives William Ali of the New York City Police Department. His end of watch was this past Thursday, not past Thursday, Thursday, May 24th of this year. And a little side note, um, I happen to have briefly known uh, Chief of Detectives William Ali because uh, he was a member of the Columbia Association, in which I was a board officer with the NYPD. And this is from SI Live by Mira Wasif. Decorated officer slept with his shield under his pillow when he rose through the ranks and became Chief of Detectives. But that didn't mean he wasn't running things from a cushy office. Instead, he was on the streets helping other cops, helping his cops, and above all, his beloved city. The Willowbrook native sifted through the wreckage of the Fresh Kills landfill after September 11th terrorist attacks and fought against drugs, gangs, and prostitutions in the Lower East Side of New York. It was always in his heart that his daughter, Diana Ali Fulton, Ali, 76, died from a 9-11-related illness at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 
He is the highest-ranking uniformed cop to die of the September 11th illness, his family said. We're still in shock, Diana said. It never entered my mind that this would happen. Ali first wanted to be a firefighter before embarking on a decorated 40-year career at the police department. Inspired by his uncle, who was also a detective, and two Queens cops from his old neighborhood, Ali went to the police academy and made a difference in several New York City neighborhoods, from Hell's Kitchen to the Lower East Side to Brooklyn. While a lieutenant in Manhattan South Narcotics, he and his team worked tirelessly to rid the Lower East Side of drug dealers who preyed upon the community during the crack epidemic. He also played a pivotal role while serving at Midtown South Precinct during the cleanup and revitalization of Times Square. He loved helping and protecting people, said his daughter, Christine Ali Escadon. He was a cop's cop because he was still on the streets. Ali also held the ranks of officer, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, commander of detective squads, captain, duty inspector, inspector, deputy chief, and finally, chief of detectives. He was the recipient of 43 department recognition awards for excellent police work and two unit citations. He retired in 2003. He was so proud of being chief detective, Sienna said, it was something he could never imagine. Aliyah was deeply devastated by the terrorist attacks on September 11th, his family shared. He was at headquarters that fateful day and heard the planes go over. He phoned home after the first building collapsed, but then was missing for several hours after the second tower fell. He and a fellow officer took refuge in a Verizon building and emerged blanketed in dust. He was devastated, Diana said. It was such a horrible, horrible thing that his city and his country was attacked. He couldn't put into words, so he went into action. Ali began managing what was a monumental crime scene, searching for civilians, firefighters, and cops in the midst of the chaos. He didn't return home until the next day. After the tragic events, his work began. Ali was in charge of the compartmentalizing and analyzing evidence from the World Trade Center site at the fresh-killed landfill on Staten Island. In a C-SPAN documentary from January of 2002, he and his team was able to identify 46 victims after digging through the debris from a landfill. This is not a dump, he said on the documentary. It is sacred ground. This is an extension of the World Trade Center, he added. I'm proud to be involved in this. His daughter said he found jewelry, identification, wallets, and other personal possessions. He treated every piece with respect, they added. He was at the landfill every day. Lee said he would come home at night and drive around in an all-terrain vehicle thinking about how he got out and others didn't. It's humbling, he said in the C-SPAN piece. This is the most horrendous thing that's happened to this country, he added. When Ali retired, he was honored by then-Police Commissioner Ray Kelly. William Ali is a true professional and is leaving a lasting legacy, Kelly said, after the retirement ceremony. A former commissioner said Ali would be particularly remembered for the sensitive way in which he led the recovery efforts at Grand Zero and Fresh Kills. Ali was diagnosed with the 9-11-related leukemia 
in September of 2017, and doctors and his family were optimistic about his prognosis. He went he underwent four rounds of chemotherapy and had common side effects like hearing loss and a horrible cough. A month before he passed, Diana was set to donate her bone marrow, but the doctors were unable to perform the procedure because the cancer grew more aggressive. The night before he died, he appeared fine, was joking with doctors, and the family said he passed away on May 24th at Memorial Sloan Kettering. The, le- the leukemia had taken over his breathing, and he went into cardiac arrest, the family said. Everyone was shocked, Christine said. There was no indication he would pass that morning. He was such a great person, kind, giving, and generous, Diana added. There is such a void. Today's show is dedicated to Chief of Detectives William Ali and to all first responders. Be they law enforcement, corrections, firefighters, emergency service. It's also dedicated to the brave men and women that protect our nation from the birth of the nation through today and into its future. And we also send a special dedication to the brave men and women standing at our borders today as an invasion occurs. We dedicate to all of them with this song, My Name is America, by Todd Allen Harrington. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and
back. You're here. Listen to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, YouTube, all the heck with it. Ah, once again, just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my colorful co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we've got ourselves a rock and roll show uh, today, and... Uh, I got to tell you, I'm going to pull up into the bullpen uh, someone who I love to pull his leg on. Uh, shall we, or huh. shall we just leave him in limbo? <laughs> uh, let's bring him on. Curtis, <laughs> hey, Mike. Okay. Hey, how are you, Curtis? Andy, well, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving, uh, everybody. Oh, Happy yeah. Thanksgiving. <laughs> we got Mike Cutler of the Mike Cutler Hour here on Blog Talk Radio. He also contributes to Front Page and several other uh, periodicals. Uh, welcome aboard, Mike. It is always fun to talk to you, and I know. I'm just going to sit back and let you take over the show. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andy. By the way, it's the Michael Cutler Hour, the Michael Cutler Hour. Um, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm checking the, out I what the... is going on with, with two things that I think should probably be of interest to all of us. First of all, you can't mistake the news coverage of the caravan uh, of migrants. I call them aspiring illegal aliens. <clears throat> and, of course, we have the trial in Brooklyn, in the Eastern District of New York, of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, and they're both connected. And what blows my mind is that both political parties, both political parties, in my judgment, get equal blame for where we are today, period. No equivocation. We're not going to sugarcoat it or, or play games with this. We had Republican candidates running positions in the House and Senate that were not funded by the Republican Party, and I believe they were not funded because they oppose globalism. Both parties are globalist parties. They often operate in collusion and concert with one another. And so we have tonnage of narcotics flowing freely into the United States. We have terrorists easily gaming the immigration system and killing innocent victims. We have gangbangers flooding into America, killing people primarily within their own ethnic immigrant communities. We have Americans losing their jobs to workers from other countries who are displacing them. <clears throat> and forget the speeches. My mother used to say actions speak louder than words. The Democrats say, let's get rid of ICE. And the Republicans feigning anger say, oh, my God, they're crazy. What are they saying? They're actually saying what the Republicans, for the most part, would love to see happen. See, they're playing a game with us, folks. They are magicians. Think about the magician who promises to chop his beautiful assistant in half. Now, we all know that if he does it, he's going to jail, and when he gets out of jail, if ever, no one's ever going to work with him again. So everyone knows what the gag is. He creates a very convincing illusion that he's cut the woman in half, and at the end of the show, miraculously, she bounces up on the stage. Not a hair on her head has been harmed, and everybody gets a standing ovation. That's the magic act. The politicians from both parties know that most rational and reasonable Americans want our borders secured against the entry of criminals, terrorists, replacement workers, and narcotics. Everybody knows it. The politicians up until now have all been promising to do it, the Democrats, however, are saying, no, 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 this isn't right. This isn't compassionate. <clears throat> We're going to treat everybody the same. We're going to flood America with more workers. Never mind 
that we don't have enough money, food, shelter, clothing, hospitals, education to go around. We're going to share plenty of nothing with everybody. And everybody says, that's crazy. What are the Republicans doing? You had the Republicans in control of the House and the Senate and the White House. So how's the wall doing? We had the Republicans in charge of the three branches of government, uh, or two branches of government, actually. And uh, although you would think the Democrats control the courts, and the, some of these rulings, my goodness gracious, but you, you have the, Democrat, the Republicans in control of the government, okay, legislature and the executive branch. How many more ICE agents did we hire? Understand that these are failures by design. And in fact, that was the title of an article that I just wrote for the quarterly, The Social Contract. I called it Sanctuary Country Immigration Failures by Design. And the publishers liked my idea so much that the theme for the entire edition was Sanctuary Nation. Now, why do I call it a Sanctuary Nation? Because you have 6,000 ICE agents to protect the entire country, 6,000. Let's put that in perspective. And by the way, half of them aren't doing immigration work. They're doing customs work and going after um, uh, kitty porn. They're going after drugs. They're going after money laundering. They're going after people that steal intellectual property rights and manufacture counterfeit Gucci loafers without giving a second thought to people who counterfeit passports. <clears throat> so we have mm-hmm. maybe 3,000 ICE agents for the whole country. Annie, you were a cop. Could you imagine if, they, if, if your captain came to you and said, Annie, you and your partner and eight other cops are going to provide security for the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Go out there and make it safe. How would that turn out? Been there. <laughs> okay. Does it work? No. Um, See, the point is that's what the federal government has done. The magic act is to make the promises to give us new laws but make sure that there's nobody available to enforce the laws. And, and, you know, with all the talk about putting the military on the border, here's a unique way of looking at immigration. Do you know that immigration actually backs up the military? Think about it. The primary mission of all five branches of our armed forces, Army, Air Force, Marines, Navy, Coast Guard, primary mission, shared mission, keep America's enemies as far from our shores as possible. There's well over 1 million members of the armed forces of the United States protecting our nation. They do amazing work. Their gallantry, their courage, their dedication, their patriotism, unwavering. But when the bad guys get up close and in person, that mission then falls to the Department of Homeland Security, the Border Patrol, the inspectors at ports of entry, and the ICE agents. So we've got over a million members of the armed forces, but up close and in person, protecting us on the last line of defense, about 3,000 ICE agents. Let's remember the C in ICE stands for customs. So it's right there in the title. And they were so determined to get immigration out of the agency that they created a secondary agency within ICE. It's called HSI. No one even knows what it stands for. It's Homeland Security Investigations. Because... President Bush and President Obama did not want the word immigration to be seen or heard anywhere. The way that President George W. Bush created created DHS made it impossible to enforce our immigration laws. That's not my position alone. I've testified before 17 congressional hearings in the House and Senate. 
I doubt that I will ever again be called because I've succeeded in pissing everybody off, which pleases me no end. Because <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm as proud of my friends, Annie, as I am of my enemies because I've acquired both groups for the right reasons. Well, John Hostetler, when he was chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee, and he is a conservative Republican from the great state of Indiana. In fact, I campaigned with him because his funding for his reelection was, was cut off, okay, by the Republican Party. And he went at the issue of how the administration of George W. Bush created an agency that it was unable to secure the borders or enforce the laws of the immigration laws within the interior, even though everybody knew that it was multiple failures of the immigration system that enabled the terrorists to enter the United States and attack us. They mixed in customs, they mixed in the sky marshals, they mixed in TSA, they mixed in everything and almost every boss under Bush that headed up an office of, of ICE came from someplace other than immigration law enforcement. The idea was to de-emphasize border security, immigration enforcement, and in fact, Ramos and Compey on two border patrol agents who were doing their job on the dangerous Mexican border wound up being arrested, prosecuted, and one of the two gentlemen, when he was viciously attacked and almost killed in prison, to protect him, quote-unquote, they put him into solitary confinement for the balance yeah. of his prison yeah. sentence. When he came out of jail, he needed psychological treatment. Now, if you had done this to a terrorist, the ACLU would have been having riots throughout America. It was a Border Patrol agent, and no one even talked about it. I met these folks. I met their families. They were devastated by the way that George W. Bush screwed them over royally. And the judge that heard the case was, a, was an appointee of George W. Bush. He kept exculpatory information, exculpatory evidence from the defense attorneys, which is illegal, by the way. It's illegal. There is a federal requirement that if a case agent or any agent is about to take the witness stand, uh, you're supposed, it's called the Giglio ruling. You are supposed to tell the defendant anything and everything negative in that agent's case file or, or personnel folder. So in other words, <clears throat> let's say an agent goes to testify in court and that agent was suspended for misusing a government car or was suspended because, um, you know, he, he kept coming to work late. I'm just giving you an example. Something as insignificant as that has to be reported to the defense team so they know who this guy that's testifying against their defendant is. The guy that they were involved with, Ramos and Compion, who pulled a gun on them and later ran away, they fired at him. They thought they missed him. Afterwards, it was claimed that they hit him in the rear end. They never were told that prior to and after their encounter with this guy, where he acted erratically, he was driving a vehicle in a known smuggling area, took off running when they stopped him, did everything that you would expect someone who was guilty of drug smuggling would have done. Uh, when he hopped the border and disappeared, they went to the truck that he abandoned, and there was a load of marijuana in the truck. Turns out he had previous encounters with the Border Patrol where he was arrested for drugs. Turns out that afterwards he was again caught with drugs but given immunity so that he could testify against the Border Patrol agents. George W. Bush also gave National Guardsmen medals. They had a medal ceremony for their valor on the U.S.-Mexican border. Remember when, when Bush 
brought in the border patrol, the, the military to back up the border patrol with the striker vehicles. We're macho. And you know that he gave those men and women on the border medals of valor. And you know what they did to earn those medals, Annie? Do you remember? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. No. I wish. There were armed drug smugglers from Mexico seen entering the United States, and our military quickly drove in the opposite direction and fled the conflict. And for that, everyone who fled was given a medal. So when I hear this nonsense, oh, we've got to vote for Republicans, they're good. Neither party is good. The only president that we've had in decades, since maybe Eisenhower or even JFK, the only president who gives a damn about America's borders is the man sitting in the Oval Office right now, Donald J. Trump. Now, I I think that his use of language creates problems. I sometimes say that his biggest adversary can sometimes be his own mouth. But I understand who he is, and I understand why he sounds the way he does. Because my dad, may he rest in peace, will always be my biggest hero next to my mom. But my dad was a construction worker. Donald Trump came out of the construction industries. They all sound the same. Everything is black and white. There's no shades of gray. It's shorthand, and it's get the job done. If they went to my father, if the foreman went to my father and said, this is what you got to do, and this is when you have to get it done by, all they wanted to hear is, it's done. I got it. I got this. Well, and my, they didn't care if the I, I job was dangerous, filthy, or backbreaking. I'm sorry. Well, I got a question for you now. I got a question for you now because we, we see what's going on in the border now, the caravan, or as I call it, the invasion. And yep. Trump has gotten really upset over Christian Nielsen not really doing too much. So do you think that he will be replacing her? Because I still don't see her uh, executing everything he wants her to do. I, I think she's weak-willed. Well, I, and I also think that her background isn't along the lines of immigration enforcement. Tom Homan was an enforcement guy. He was the acting director of ICE, and then he finally retired. But I, I, I could see him replacing her. And, and, and so here's the problem that nobody seems to understand. I, I do believe in the wall, by the way. But, you know, the wall by itself does nothing. Because, you know, do you know why the drugs are flowing into Mexico or from Mexico into the United States? Because they used to come directly from Colombia. The drugs that they're selling in the United States, much of it is manufactured in Colombia. The Colombian cartels were loading up speedboats, what they called the cigarette boats, and, and, and literally flying them. These boats would go 70 miles an hour in the water. They would fly them into South Miami. Think about the TV series, Miami Vice. That's what it was all about. Yep. In fact, if you want to see some yep. good documentaries, the Cocaine Cowboys, parts one and parts two, really lay it out in very dramatic fashion. They speak to smugglers. They speak to police. They speak to prosecutors. They speak to politicians. Florida was inundated with drugs. So when the rest of the economy was in the crapper, Florida was flourishing, and that's when all the high-rise buildings went up. That's when you saw all the revitalization. They could not stock Ferraris or gold Rolex watches in South Florida during that era. The money was just rolling in, and the violence was rolling in. There were shootouts every other day in crowded areas of Miami. So what they did was they quickly hired thousands of cops. They couldn't properly screen them because they just needed them on the street. They needed stuffed uniforms out there. And it turns out that by not screening them carefully – Uh, the cops that they hired wound up, for the most part, in two places, jail or the morgue. 
And, and this is what happens when you allow anarchy to take hold of the city. Today, folks, we're permitting anarchy to take hold of America. If you enter the United States illegally today, you are revered. You will be given in-state tuition. Mark Zuckerberg uh, actually created something known as the hackathon. What was the hackathon? It's an interesting term because if you hack into a computer, you're committing a crime. <clears throat> His hackathon would teach young people how to write computer code, which is really wonderful. My, my late wife, who passed away over 32 years ago to cancer, was a brilliant programmer, MBA, computer science, Phi Beta Kappa graduate. Many of our friends at the time were programmers and computer engineers. They were brilliant. They were successful. They were making good money. And so um, Mark Zuckerberg said the key to success in America is computer literacy. I will personally mentor young people so they can learn how to write code and have brilliant careers. What a wonderful thing for Mark Zuckerberg to do. But there's a twist. Do you know what the prerequisite yep. was so that Mark Zuckerberg live and in person would sit with you and walk you through the program? You had to be an illegal alien. Think of that. He didn't go into St. Louis where you saw those poor black kids who can't find an honest job rioting if they're scared and frustrated. And, and, and Obama did a great job of vilifying law enforcement to that community. He didn't say, I'll help get you out of poverty by giving you a skill set that could help you to become wealthy. He said, if you're here illegally, I will give you everything you could dream of and then some. I'll put a cherry on top. But you can't be here legally. You must be an illegal alien. Now we come to Bob um, Goodlatte. Now, you might be wondering, why am I talking about Bob Goodlatte? Bob Goodlatte is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He's a Republican. He's supposed to be a good guy. Well, Bob Goodlatte, when I met with him for 30 minutes, told me when I asked him why it was that he wasn't speaking out against Alan Greenspan, a man I detest passionately, Greenspan testified for Chuck Schumer April 30th, 2009. I will never forget the hearing. I was so angry that after I saw the hearing, I was on a radio show the next day, and the young lady asked me about my, who's hosted the show, asked me my thoughts about Greenspan and what he had to say. I said, you know, when I watched Alan Greenspan testify at the hearing, I was struck by the fact that I was witnessing the first. She said, Mike, I know you well enough. You've been on my show for a couple of years now. I'm almost afraid to ask you, what kind of a first was it? I said it was the first time they let somebody testify while suffering from rigor mortis. Okay, that's what I think of Alan Greenspan. <laughs> she told me she spent the rest of her show spending time mopping up her mascara. She couldn't stop laughing. But here's why I said something <laughs> as nasty as that. Because Alan Greenspan referred to American highly skilled workers as the privileged elite whom he claimed by being shielded from foreign competition were making wages they never should have been earning getting a wage premium that he was determined to take away from them by making them compete with foreign workers to achieve wage equality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. What this is called, folks, in one word, is communism. Okay? Yep. The former chairman of the that. Federal Reserve Bank who crashed the banking system in 2008 with his crazy subprime mortgages, right? And he blames all the housing problems on, on, on these homes that were foreclosed. Yes, they were foreclosed because his policies destroyed the middle class. He has his sights at, on the middle class 
as do both houses. Because when I asked Bob Goodlatte why he's not using the video in Republican campaigns against the Democrats, he changed the subject once, he changed the subject twice, and then I finally said to him, Mr. Chairman, are you ignoring me? Why won't you discuss Bob Go- uh, uh, um, Alan Greenspan's position against American computer programmers? And he said to me, and I almost fell over, he said, my son is an executive in the computer industry, and he would love to bring in thousands of programmers from other countries because they are brilliant and dedicated and motivated, et cetera, and et cetera. And, right. And I and said, cheap, but cheap. the Americans who now have the jobs are being fired. They're losing their homes. It's impacting America's national debt. It's impacting national security. Are the American programmers chopped liver? Well, I looked up Bobby Goodlatte, his son, after the show. Don't do it now. After the show, folks, look up Bobby Goodlatte. Guess where Bobby Goodlatte got his start in the computer industry, and he's super wealthy, successful. He got his start with, drum roll, please, Zuckerberg at Facebook. Facebook? Yep, with Zuckerberg. What do you think of that? So one of the provisions of the good last bill that he tried to pass previously, and I wrote about it for Front Page Magazine, was to bring in thousands of additional H-1B visas, just like little boy Bobby wanted. How nice to have a daddy who can pull the strings to give his son a gift at the expense of the American people. That's what we're dealing with, folks. I'm going to mince no words here. And now... I was just on a, on a conservative TV show, and I love the guy, but he's getting it wrong. Bob Goodlatte has a new bill that he wants to push through as a lame duck. And what is the bill? Mandatory E-Verify and lots more agriculture workers, because God only knows the farmers need their agriculture workers. So let's be clear. We do need mandatory E-Verify. I think it's right. It should have been done a long time ago. But it doesn't matter if you don't hire any more immigration agents because it's easy to defeat mandatory E-Verify. See, everyone says to me, it's a computer system. You can't defeat it. Folks, you can defeat anything you want. Lots, as my dad used to say to me, are only for honest people. If you don't want to hire legally, you hire illegal aliens off the books. And I used to see it as an agent. And the only way that you know this is happening is to physically go to the employment venue and see who's there. I've actually walked into factories where there's two sets of time cards on the wall. One set is legit. The other set is just so that the guy knows how much to pay the workers. So he's got 35 cards over here, and he's got 394 cards over there. Guess one? with the illegal aliens. In some cases, they don't even have time cards for the illegals. They just say to the guy, you come in, I'll give you 25 bucks a day, something ridiculous. And desperate people will take desperate amounts of cuts in, in wage and so forth. There's no, this isn't about compassion. This is slavery and suffering. So what, what we're seeing is, this, again, this is the magic act. We're going to give you mandatory E-Verify. Wow, that's exciting. Farm workers, great. If you bring in more farm workers, most of them won't go to work in the farms. If they do, they're going to look around and say, I'm not working here, screw this, and they disappear. We had a case back when I was doing work with the 71st Precinct in, in, in Brooklyn, New York, and this was interesting. I was working with the cops on some other stuff, 
And suddenly we became aware of a bunch of commando-style bank robberies being pulled all over New York City. The people that were doing it had been admitted to the United States for the most part as agricultural workers, plus there were some stowaways. They were not from Mexico. They from, were from Jamaica, Trinidad, the Caribbean, that part of the country, and Panama. And what had happened was they came on agricultural visas, and then they looked at the farm and said, I can't do this, and they left. But there was nobody out there to, to police the system, so they started working illegally, and then they got this idea that if we could join the Marine Corps, we could learn how to handle firearms, and then we could really be hot stuff. It just so happened that the Navy was beating up on their Marine recruiters because they were down on their quotas. So we had Marine recruiters providing illegal aliens with identity documents and fake names so they could be enlisted. They were meeting their quotas, and suddenly we had a bunch of illegal aliens in the Marine Corps, and many of them, once they got tactical weapons training, went AWOL and stole high-powered military weapons from the armories, and they were the ones doing the high, the, these commando-style bank robberies. So we put together just a, an ad hoc, on-the-fly group I was working with them along with my partner from INS. We had a couple of agents from what was then Naval Intelligence, now it's NCIS. We had members of the New York City Police Department. They provided the greatest number. And we also had ATF involved because of the weaponry. And we were locking these people up, and Naval Intelligence was going after the recruiters, and they put a bunch of them in jail for a long time. But understand what we're dealing with. The farmers never got their farm workers but the streets got more criminals. If you really think we need more farm workers, then there ought to be some kind of a ratio between the number of visas that you issue and the number of agents that make certain the system has integrity. I think that's rational and reasonable, you know? But they're not doing that. All they're saying is let's flood America with aliens. Any way we'll take them, we'll get them. Now, look at the nonsense that we're hearing about how many illegal aliens are here. And I just wrote about this. MIT and Harvard both did studies, and surprisingly, they said that we do not have 11 million illegal aliens here. We probably have more than twice as many. They're estimating maybe 25 million, 23 million. I think it's probably between 30 and 40 million. So they came out and said these numbers are ridiculous. But what we're hearing from the politicians from both parties, we can't deport them all. So the only reasonable course of action is to give them legal status. Really. So think how crazy, but think how many people have fallen for the scam. Again, it's the woman being cut in half. How many people fall for the scam? I'm glad you asked. When I go and do speaking events, I do them <laughs> frequently. If anyone knows of opportunities, let me know. People say to me, oh, if we can't arrest them all, what do we do with the ones we can't arrest? And I say to them, I'm a Jew, so I answer questions with another question. So my question is, and you can answer this, Annie, what do you do with the drunk drivers you didn't catch when you were a cop? Okay? <laughs> Have you ever heard anyone say there's too many people drinking and driving to do anything about it? Of course not. There are more people with cell phones and driver's licenses than there are illegal aliens, at least so far. Have you ever heard a mayor governor or chief of police say there are too many people with cell phones who have driver's licenses to stop people from texting while driving. How many times have you heard that argument? Never. Not so once. if we hand, if we hand, I'm sorry. 
I said not one. But I was going to ask you another question. I'm going to ask you another question because we're talking about right now, you're talking about people coming in on these visas. But what we're also facing now is the backlash of them saying, oh, but they're seeking asylum. There's no such thing as an economic asylum. So they're, they're, they're coaching them Great point. on how to say – and right now, Great point. Well, well, but I, I just I just wanted to finish this part about the illegal aliens because it's not just about legal because this includes everybody. So so here's the argument that we hear is we can't arrest them all, give everybody lawful status, which is insane. You know, when we had a big problem with drunk driving, and I'm sure you remember what Saturday nights used to be like on the on the Bell Parkway, right? You had so many drunks they were doing S turns. Sometimes they would collide on the highway because they were there were that many drunks. How did they solve that problem? I mean, it's still a problem, but they really reduced it. It started with the public mindset. I remember Johnny Carson uh, having John Wayne on the show, and John Wayne joked about coming home so drunk he didn't remember driving home and made the crack that God must have been his co-pilot, and Carson was on the floor laughing. Nobody would laugh at that today. By public relations campaigns, we changed people's understanding of how dangerous drunk driving is, how many people are being killed, how many people are being critically injured and permanently maimed. So suddenly this wasn't funny anymore. And what they did was lower the permissible blood alcohol level so that it's easier to prosecute people. And then they increased the penalties for anybody caught drunk driving. You know, we'll take your wallet, we'll take your car, we'll take your license, we'll take your freedom. Well, who wants that grief? So suddenly people are saying, okay, I'll have a friend drive me, or I'll I'll grab a cab, or I'll grab an Uber, or I'll take the bus, okay? But if this was immigration, they they should have raised the blood alcohol level. They should have declared that you can't be deemed legally drunk until you hit 3.0. If you're 3.0, you're unconscious. If you're unconscious, you can't drive. If you can't drive, you can't hurt anybody. So if this was the way, if they did with drunk driving what they've done with immigration, they should have said... We're going to allow you to drink up to 3.0. Nobody would be arrested for legally drunk driving if they set the bar so high. Then you issue a news conference and say, look at this. We haven't had a single fatality attributed to a legally drunk driver since we changed the law. That's how they're dealing with immigration. And they're, and they're encouraging people to violate the laws, violate the borders by any way that they can. And so you have political asylum now replacing the visa requirements. Stop and think about it. Up until the insanity of the past couple of administrations, up until Bush, up until Clinton, up until certainly Obama, if you wanted to come to America, you had to have a visa. By the way, Ronald Reagan gifted us the visa waiver program, which undermines national security, and they've kept on expanding it, except since Trump came to office, they stopped expanding it. We had 26 visa waiver countries on 9-11. We got up to 38. The 9-11 Commission said we have to tighten up the visa process. How is a visa waiver program tightening up the visa process? Okay? So, again, it's both parties that did this. But normally, if you're an alien, you want to enter the United States, unless you were transiting without a visa and you were going from New York, let's say, from, let's say you were coming from England, going to New York and flying to Argentina – you wouldn't have needed a visa under the transit without visa program. That ended, by the way, and it took Bush until August 2002 to end that program. Understand how powerful the Chamber of Commerce and these other special interest groups are, making it impossible to secure the borders. And I've had people from the Chamber of Commerce flat out tell me, 
Our borders are an impediment to their wealth. Think about that mentality. Never mind they're our first line of defense. So normally you would need to have a visa to come to the United States. We have different categories of visas. You have the B-1, B-2 tourist visa. You have the H-1B temporary worker, the F-1 student. There were a bunch of visas. You had to have a visa. The inspector then decided whether or not you were admissible. I did that job for the first four years of my career at Kennedy Airport. And the Bible to determine whether or not an alien is admissible is the same section of law that the president used when he implemented what the media improperly, falsely, maliciously called the travel ban. Incredibly, Trump came to call it the travel ban also. It's actually an entry restriction. And the actual title was protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. That's under Title F of uh, Title, uh, Title Eight, United States Code, Section 1182, and then a parenthesis, F. And, and we're going to get to that in a minute because of what's going on on the border and with this judge's ruling yesterday in San Francisco. We need to revisit that. But under, under the overall section of law, and it's a pretty big section, it lists all the categories of aliens who are to be kept out of the United States. It has absolutely nothing to do with race, Nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with ethnicity. And I will tell you right up front, if the law did have to do with race, religion, or ethnicity, I could not have enforced those laws for 30 seconds, let alone 30 years. Okay? What it's about are aliens with dangerous communicable diseases or mental illness. Let's remember Ellis Island was a quarantine station. Okay? It was the biggest hospital in the United States at the time that it was built. It consisted, I believe, of 42 separate buildings. Big emphasis not only to prevent epidemics, which is what everyone understands, but to make certain that the aliens who came could physically be up to the jobs of working. That's why when you walked into the Grand Hall, there was a huge staircase you had to climb. It wasn't just an architectural nicety. They had doctors posted along the stairway, and they could see who was wheezing and having trouble breathing, and if that was you, you weren't getting in because if you can't walk up the stairs, you sure as hell can't do a day's work. So this was all geared up to prevent epidemics and make certain that the people who did come to America were physically able to work. Then we get to aliens who are criminals, murderers, spy, uh, murderers, uh, human traffickers, gang members, gun runners, excludable. Aliens who are fugitives from justice, terrorists, spies human rights violators, war criminals, inadmissible, aliens who are likely to become a public charge, or aliens who, if they work, would displace Americans and drive down wages if they didn't flat-out cost Americans their jobs. That's what's in the law. There's nothing wrong with that. It makes perfect sense. That's how you protect your citizens. Okay? So now, the idea of political asylum was supposed to be that if an alien came to America who could articulate a credible fear that was supposed to be investigated and verified, a credible fear that they face persecution or worse because of their race, religion, ethnicity, or political viewpoint, then we would entertain their application for political asylum. And think of how many Jews were turned around during the Second World War. I think of the boat to St. Louis. Many of them were sent home to be killed by the Nazis. So it was very stringent because the concern was we didn't want to let in the war criminals, we didn't want to let in spies, and so forth. Now you have judges ruling that anybody can apply for asylum, 
And what's remarkable is you have immigration lawyers going down to South America coaching the aliens. Um, I was on NRA TV earlier today with Grant Stenchfield. He's terrific. I was on with Dana Loesch a couple of days ago also to talk about this. When Dana brought me on to the show, I was sitting in my house. I do it by Skype for them. And I'll probably be on I-24 News tonight. They're based in Tel Aviv, but they do have programs. Their program airs on cable networks around the country. But when I was on with, um, with Dana Loesch, this was a few days ago, and the video, I think this is up on the Internet, it was really interesting because they interviewed one of the members of the caravan. And they said, why are you coming to America? Now, you would have expected him to say, you know, uh, the, the police want to kill me because I, I don't support the government. Something like that. That's legit. No. His answer, Annie, you want to talk about good old-fashioned chutzpah, you're going to love this answer. Are you sitting down? Do you have your seatbelt uh, on? Absolutely. They want a job. Okay. They want a okay. job. Okay. Hang on to, your, to the hand rests on your seat because here we go. He said he's coming to America to get a pardon. And the reporter said a pardon for what? He was convicted of attempted murder in the third degree. True story. <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. They interviewed other people similarly. Well, I want to come to America. My business isn't doing well in Honduras. I need to make more money. Oh, and by the way, I know how wonderful America is because I was there before and they deported me. Well, in both cases, if you come back, you're looking at a prison sentence because it's a criminal act to reenter after being deported. In fact, as you know, Annie, I worked with Al D'Amato, so that if you're a criminal and you were deported, you're looking at up to 20 years in jail. But the media says, oh, they're just looking for a better life. Right. The guy that attempted murder and was convicted, he's looking to take someone's life, perhaps. And, and so you look at the craziness. And then you come to a story, and no one's talking about this, and and I want you and your audience to understand just how dangerous uh, the situation is that we're facing right now, Annie, because this is really the stuff of my nightmares. I'm sure it's the stuff of your nightmares. You know, I follow the hearings very closely in Washington because, um, well, it's a good way to find out what's really going on in various areas of our government. And even though it's open source material, meaning it's not classified, it really gives you some great insight. So I, was, I, I found a hearing that was done on April 17th of this year. It was by the Homeland Security Committee, Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. This is in the House. Peter King, Chairman. And the topic was the state sponsors of terrorism and examination of Iran's global terrorism network. See, everyone is fascinated with the question, who is paying for the caravan? And I don't think it's one individual or one organization. I think this is a confluence of a number of anti-American groups and organizations that are doing this. But I think that a prime candidate, believe it or not, is the government of Iran. And they know you've got people sitting there now scratching their heads and saying, what is this guy Cutler talking about? How and why would Iran be involved in Latin America? So let me read part of the testimony of an expert at that hearing. And by the way, even the Democratic witness at the hearing did not disagree with this assessment and actually agreed with it. This is the stuff of your nightmares, boys and girls. And if you remember, Mr. Obama gave a bunch of gifts to Iran, including billions of dollars. It looked like a Hollywood drug deal, the way the pallets of bills were delivered to Iran. 
He also created a nightmare with their nuclear program so that they are guaranteed nuclear weapons in 10 years. Kicking a can 10 years down the road doesn't solve the problem. It just gives our children the problem to deal with. Okay? And so President Trump did the right thing and said, deal is off. The government of Iran has said that they have surprises for the president and for Americans. We have had sleeper agents from Iran arrested in the United States, and you may not remember this, but when Mr. Obama ran for re-election, there was a plot that was stopped that involved Iranians who were involved with their Quds forces, the so-called shock troops, along the Mexican border. Their, their assignment was to kill the Saudi ambassador, blow up the Saudi embassy, and perhaps also the Israeli embassy. They were Quds forces operating through Venezuela because over a decade now, to my knowledge, you have had Iranian shock troops going directly from Tehran, Iran, right into Caracas, Venezuela. And, of course, Venezuela is not our friend, and they're a failed state. And they're communists, and it's a totalitarian but, regime. And, well, Michael, Michael I, want to point out, I want to point out, I have not been able to find this article, but I remember sitting in a doctor's office, and this was prior to 9-11, late 1990s. I don't remember if it was Newsweek or Time magazine. They had an article about OTMs, other than Mexicans crossing the southern border. And the article back then in the late 90s, prior to 9-11, stated equivocally that they were finding Korans, prayer rugs. They were finding people oh, coming absolutely. in from yeah. no, this, is, this is accurate. This is accurate. Yes. But let and, me and read this. this. I, I, this I, I really want back. to make sure that, that everyone follows the thread here. So, so, so understand what, this, what we're talking about. So at this hearing about the state sponsor of terrorism, Iran's global network, we have an expert by the name of Dr. Emmanuel Ortolenge of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. This is more serious than what you just said, Annie. Please listen to this. This is his words now, his testimony under oath. In recent years, this, by the way, was April 17, 2018, just a couple months ago. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with the violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates, often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Let's back up and remember that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization that is funded and run by the government of Iran along with Hamas. Let's also remember that there are terror training camps in the tri-border region of Brazil, where Brazil abuts with Argentina and Paraguay, and in fact, two years ago, a Pakistani national was arrested for human trafficking. He had acquired immigrant status in Brazil, set up shop there with his cohorts, and was then moving numbers of Middle Eastern men into Brazil and ultimately into the United States. This is ongoing as you're listening to this program, folks. So he makes the point about uh, Hezbollah's Latin American networks, and then he says this. Cooperation includes laundering of drug money, arranging multi-ton shipments of cocaine to the United States and Europe, and directly distributing and selling illicit substances to distant markets. Proceeds from these activities finance Hezbollah's arms procurement, its terror activities overseas, its hold on Lebanon's political system, and its efforts both in Lebanon and overseas to keep Shia's communities loyal to its cause and complicit in its endeavors. And here now, having set that up, this sentence or this paragraph keeps me awake every single night, folks. I kid you not. 
Listen very carefully. If you want to see this for yourself, go to frontpagemag.com. You can see my articles. When I make a statement, I back it up with facts, with facts that are incontrovertible. And here is this statement that you need to pay careful attention to. Here we go. This toxic crime terror nexus is fueling both the rise, the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America that is helping to drive drugs and people northward into the United States. It is sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs. It is helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America. It is thus facilitating their efforts to build safe havens for terrorists and a continent-wide terror infrastructure that they could use to strike U.S. targets. What do you think of that? Mike, I, 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 I'm absolutely terrified by that, but I've got my next guest on. Do you want to stay with us? Uh, we've got Quentin Kramer on from uh, Fund the Wall, the American Border Foundation, where he is actively raising money to help secure the border. So if you give us a second, Mike, uh, let me bring Quentin on. Good afternoon, Quentin. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I have the two of you on because you know, I've known Mike for, gosh, Mike, since, what, 1989? Forever. Um, Forever. Yeah, true. He was he was the ICE agent upstairs. I was the cop downstairs. Uh, but you started this organization of American Border Foundation a while ago, and then you've launched FundTheWall.com. Tell us about your group. Sure. So the foundation itself is aligned with DHS and CBP and the sheriffs and other organizations that are down there at the border trying to help America directly apply resources to getting the problem of operational control there solved. It seems like with the resources that the federal government's been allocating, it just isn't getting the job done. So we felt like Americans would want to participate directly to the extent that they could in helping get that accomplished. Well, you do it uniquely so, where people can now make a donation directly to your foundation. So you work with other organizations, but the uniqueness of it is, is the way you've set it up, that money can only be used for what you specify it for, correct? Correct. So we found a way in DHS's uh, language to deliver the money directly to DHS and have them use those funds with conditions only to be applied towards border wall construction. So they basically had a process in place to accept gifts, which was probably designed to receive someone who might donate their estate to them after they passed. But we were able to negotiate with them a way to have them receive the funds from us. So what is the response you've been getting? Because I know you started Fund the Wall just recently while you had the American Border Foundation already set up. So what is the type of response, and how is the fundraiser going? Oh, it's been outstanding. I mean, the Americans, I think, have been waiting for some time for this to occur, and we've had a great outpouring of uh, support from virtually everyone who saw it. And to be honest, we expected a few skeptics from the far fringes of each side, but even the people who are diehard, you know, Mexico is going to pay for it. I think recognize that even if they do, and as they do, it's going to go into the general treasury still uh, beholden to the congressional appropriations process. And that's really not what we're after. So again, we found a way to get it directly to DHS. Now, is this just specifically for a hard wall or is it for other equipment uh, for other services? What type of things are you uh, pouring into DHS? Well, for DHS, it has to only be a wall because there's not really a mechanism by, yet to 
provide them with materials and so forth. But in terms of the sheriffs themselves, they can use anything, whether it's night vision goggles, canine uh, body armor, um, provisions for their vehicles, or even boots. I mean, what happens there is that most of the money ends up getting spent on overtime, and so they haven't got the resources that they need to get physical equipment and infrastructure and technology in place. So you've actually partnered with various sheriff's offices and organizations so that they can do the actual enforcement. That's correct. In particular, this uh, Texas Border Sheriff's Coalition has been a great partner with us, and we're looking forward to working with them very closely in the future. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize what those sheriffs go through, but to the extent that someone gets past CBP at the border, they become the local sheriff's problem. And when a resident of one of those border counties or even inside the border a fair distance has a problem with illegal aliens, they're not calling CBP because you don't know when they're on your property what they are. They're just there robbing your house or accosting you or doing whatever, and so you're going to call the sheriff's department and have them deal with it. Uh, And so they get all of the overflow that comes in and gets past the border. Andy, I don't want to interrupt. I'm going to have to bail out. I, I just want to thank your guest for the work that he's doing. It's so important for all Americans to band together. You know, this divisive nonsense about Latino voters, black voters, this voter, that voter, Democrat, Republican. At the end of the day, we're Americans. We really need to focus on yep. what makes us most similar. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I'm going to bail out. Thank because you. I've, I've got to get ready to do a TV appearance in a, in a couple of hours. Uh, so I'm heading into Manhattan. But I, I just wanted to thank you for what you're doing. Annie, as always, it's a pleasure and privilege to join you. And I so appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience because you do such an amazing job. Thank you, Mike. And you have a very happy Thanksgiving. I wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. With all the problems, we still have much to be thankful for. I hope it's a great holiday for everybody out there. Let's uh, let's do this again soon, Annie. It's always great to join you. Well, you got my number, Mike. <laughs> all right. Okay, kiddo. Be well. <laughs> Take care, Mike. Take care. All right. Be well. so check out all right. Michael Cutler. MichaelCutler.net. So check out, yep, that's what I got. I got it right this time. Uh, but, uh, Quentin, it is uh, Michael Cutler happens mm-hmm. to be an ICE agent, uh, and he worked uh, a lot with NYPD, and he was stationed upstairs. That's how I got to meet him. And when uh, a fellow cop and friend of mine, Bob Machadi, was killed by an mm-hmm. illegal alien, uh, illegal alien, I'm going to be correct about that, um, it was mm-hmm. Mike that helped with the investigation, and he had previously uh, personally walked this guy back across the border the first two times he, they caught him. And now that he killed my friend, p- fellow officer, uh, Bobby Machete, um, he went and then helped the prosecution and again, once again, walked him over the border. Uh, he's testified before Congress, before the 9-11 Commission, before the Senate, uh, and he also writes with front page magazines. So maybe he's someone that you should be talking to because he can give you an insight on a lot of the workings here. But I was so glad when Kat got a hold of me and told me about you and I went over your website and it's a marvelous website, which is fundthewall.com. Um, and it, what prompted you to even start this? Well, uh, believe it or not, an online conversation many years ago at this point, uh, relative to the fact that really nothing was getting done. We saw through the previous administration that there was really no inclination to get the border secured. It seems like they were potentially interested in advertising in some of those countries directly to the citizens that they could come here and claim asylum and try to get citizenship that way. So a bunch of people just had a conversation, and I ended up with the domain, fundthewall.com. What we had talked about was actually trying to crowdsource the labor and materials and just simply build it ourselves if no one else had the volition to do it. But it seems like there's 
a lot of work involved in that regards to eminent domain or the environmental legislation. So instead, uh, what happened is that we were able to find, as I said, a process by which we could get directly to DHS and not have to deal with Congress. And so instead of taking on some of those lawsuits ourselves, we felt it was appropriate to give DHS a try and find out if they were in good faith going to build when we produce the money. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, why did you choose DHS? Um, not Why not some other governmental organization? Well, DHS has the mandate. When you look at the Secure Fence Act of 2006, it provides them with a clear impetus to secure the border, and, and it defines that phrase, operational control, which is to prevent 100% of illegal aliens or any sort of contraband or terrorists or illegal drugs from crossing the border. And to that extent, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to put a wall from coast to coast, but it means that we need to have the resources in place, whether it's manpower or technology or a wall, to get the border secured. And so we felt like it was appropriate to send the money to DHS because they're ultimately going to pay the contractor to build it. Um, Another option might have been the Army Corps of Engineers, but we found that if we were to do that, then they still have to go back to Congress and ask for permission. So actually, you are circumventing Congress. You are then allowing the American citizen or any other organizations or businesses to say, I want my dollars to go to fund the wall. We can then specify that our money is not going to go into a general fund in the government's coffers to be spent willy-nilly. We can now specify we want our national security to be first and foremost, correct? That's correct. And we have that process documented on our website. There's a document there called, uh, it's a DHS management directive, and it's about gifts to the Department of Homeland Security. And so it speaks about being able to specify what the funds can be used for and so forth. Um, Arguably, we could simply make a market for that idea that DHS will accept donations or can accept donations from individuals and they can specify it. But rather than send everyone there with a check for $5, we figured it was a better idea to negotiate that in bulk on behalf of the American people writ large and then we simply send them a check every once in a while when the money accumulates. Now, you take donations by a check, credit card, but I understand now you're also taking Bitcoin, correct? Uh, that's correct. There is an option there to be able to use Bitcoin, and so we were interested to see if people were willing to contribute with that. It hasn't seen much play, but it definitely is there and works. Now, um have you presented a first check yet or not? Or are you still building up funds before you do that? Well, it's been an interesting time because we, we wanted to – the sheriffs, when they came up with the idea on the sheriff's wall site, had set a target of $100,000. And so we've reached that goal a while ago. The first tranche of money, we made the mistake of trying to get DHS to have a public event where we would be able to present that publisher's clearinghouse-style check and so forth. And so that actually delayed the process because it's with the midterms and a lot of the other things that have happened in the last few months, um, it's been hard to get them in public. So we're working with the sheriffs right now to get the first check made just as an EFT, and we can deal with the public event afterwards. So we're looking for that any day now. Well, if someone makes a donation, do you recognize them in some way? My my question on this is where there are people that like to see their names up in lights, but what if you want you don't want your name known? Can they remain anonymous, or is everyone going to be given a certificate? How are you doing that? Yeah, we've um, we've actually been working on that answer because from the standpoint of a crowd fund, people tend to think about 100% of the funds going to the cause in question. And so we've tried to minimize the amount of overhead that's been spent on administrative fees and other recognitions and so forth. 
Um, so for right now, there is the opportunity to put a comment up, and you can have yourself recognized in that way. We've been looking at a way to mail certificates or have a, a low-cost certificate sent out, but for right now, um, it's up to you whether you want to be recognized, and in that way you can put a comment up there and be recognized on the site. Well, you know, I, I know Kevin McCarthy had uh, announced a bill to fund the wall. I'm trying to remember what the heck the name of that was. Uh, what is going uh, on with that, and is it something that you think is going to be implemented? Because as I understand it, <clears throat> they're actually looking at possibly $25 billion the wall is going to cost. So a couple different answers there. The cost of it is really dependent on the miles that they're building on. And so we've seen anywhere from 30 million a mile to 6 million a mile, um, depending on the topography and so forth. So we're looking at it on a project by project basis. Um, in terms of the bills that had been introduced, there's, there are a number of different ones. The, I think the crowdfunding bill you're mentioning was by Senator uh, Blackburn um, and that, or Representative Blackburn, forgive me, that died in committee. I don't think it ever made it out of a committee, unfortunately. And that one is probably not going to go anywhere. McCarthy's bill was to fund the whole thing. And if, Perhaps the Republicans had held the House. That might have had some legs. But even so, I don't think that the Republicans would have had the numbers in the Senate to get past a filibuster on any of those pieces of legislation as good as they are. And uh, so from that standpoint, we really have seen a big uptick since the midterms in interest because I think a lot of people realized that once the Republicans lost the House, the chance of any spending bills originating there that includes a substantial amount of money for the border is probably nil. And the Democrats in the Senate will feel even more empowered to filibuster things that do make it successfully out of the House and prevent any good funding from happening from that side. So, we, again, you know, when you look at search metrics and the types of search terms that people are putting in and ending up at the site, it's frustration terms. Is it possible for the public to fund the wall and these sorts of things? Uh, so I think people are starting to realize that if anything's going to happen in at least the next two years, it's pretty much up to us as Americans to pick up the ball and run with it because the government doesn't seem to be interested in doing it. Quentin, uh, it, it do you seems plan? Like an uphill battle. Go ahead, Curtis. Do you plan to um, promote and advertise this project national? You know, nationally. We're building that up over time. Again, we don't want to spend a significant amount of the money on advertising if we could avoid it. So we're hoping that word of mouth will pick that up, and, and spots like this will help us to gain some awareness. Uh, we have a great network of volunteers that's come up, and they're doing a, an awesome job at sharing things on social media and building a presence and following there. Um, we've made some investments. We actually were able to get a billboard uh, on 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue on Times Square, or just off of Times Square, mm -hmm. technically, in New York. That's starting to gain some good traction. That actually just went up last week. And we had the Deplorable Choir uh, release a song just today, this morning, um, <laughs> called uh, Brick by Brick. So that's starting to hit on social media. It's on YouTube. And that will also be another way that we can gain some very inexpensive yet national exposure to the project. I love that name. Well, you got to get cat. <laughs> yeah, you got to get cat to give me their contact information or, or hook them up with us because we'd love to have someone like that deplorable choir because we do host musicians and writers and everything else. We go across the board. We're we're not just a one subject uh, uh, show here. One, we, one we topic. Yeah. On Absolutely. Everything. <laughs> Now, I want to backtrack just a little bit, because when you were setting this mm -hmm. all up, uh, you were dealing with the IRS in order to get your 501c3, which you are. 
Uh, so it's any yep. donation that anyone makes is a tax deduction. Uh, but as I understand it, you had some rather hysterical uh, interactions with the IRS. Tell us about what was going on, because you're coming in on the heels of where the IRS was persecuting, and I'll say it is a persecution, against conservative groups. And some of my friends were the ones that were actually being targeted by the IRS. Uh, so that's why my Tea Party is not a 501c3. We're not incorporated at all. But you had some interesting interactions with the IRS. Tell us about that. Well, I don't know how um, – it won't be boring, but, I mean, effectively, they just took forever. Uh, so they have an 8 to 11 weeks objective to finish that process and we filed late last year 2017 they didn't grill us they didn't give us any questions we just heard nothing they just simply wouldn't respond and so we weren't sure where it was going but um, eventually in August so eight months later they finally did respond and uh, had very minimal questions more procedurals and we did finally get this letter of determination so nothing really anecdotally other than be prepared to wait. It took nearly a full year for them to finally respond and approve that. But um, effectively speaking, the, the justification that we used was that we're building a public work or building, which the wall itself is. And so uh, that in and of itself is a charitable, uh, a charitable mission. I, you're doing great work. You know, people don't realize what the cost of illegals are on the, on our country. These aliens that are coming in uh, illegally. You know, with the the public safety, uh, the taxpayer money that goes out to clothe them, to house them, to give them medical care, they are getting more attention and care from our government than our returning veterans are, or our home our own homeless American citizens. Yep. It's distressing. It really is. And what we're finding is that the many of them are not that interested in becoming legal citizens because the amount of benefits that they receive being unlawfully here is greater than what they would get if they were actually a citizen. And so there's more benefit to them by staying unregistered, staying in the dark, so to speak, than it is to become a naturalized citizen. And that is distressing in and of itself. Um, But just to think that they know and they've been well trained on how to get into the country, say the right things to the asylum uh, judge and be granted asylum so that they can take those benefits is really unfortunate for the, those American groups that you mentioned. Every American citizen suffers at the end of it because the money that we pay in for education and for health care and all that is not necessarily going to the right places or the place where you intended it to go. Now, is, uh, has the caravan that's been approaching now over these last six months, has that helped your cause? Has it helped you to raise money? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's been one, you know, it's been good on so many levels in a sense. I mean, I hate to say it's goodness, but the good is that it's raised awareness overall of the situation. And I think people recognize that if we let this one in, it's just going to generate more and more that come after it. And we've already seen another one just within the last day or two that is coming from Guatemala with just 150 people that it started with, but I'm sure it'll pick up steam. So I think having seen the truth of it uh, has been good for some Americans to be able to understand really what's happening down south and really look into what is the truth about these asylum claims and see the people on video saying, hey, I'm coming up to find a job. I mean, these are these are economic migrants. They're not asylum seekers. And so that's a point that really all of America needs to understand. The second is that it really drove a conversation around whether it's appropriate to sneak into the country and then claim asylum once you're caught versus declaring yourself at the border at a proper port of entry to a Customs and Border Patrol officer and declaring your intentions there. And I think it's really not genuine for someone to come into the country and only when caught try to claim asylum. What would have happened if they hadn't been caught? Would they have stayed in in that 
state until when? In a sanctuary city being, you know, held away from actual enforcement by uh, the local governments there who aren't interested in cooperating with ICE? I mean, that's such a frustrating scenario. I can't imagine that people are willing to stand for that. No, because you see now they're all uh, uh, congregating in Tijuana. And, oh, Lord and behold, you know, these racist Americans aren't letting these asylum seekers in, yet the citizens of Tijuana are now protesting against these asylum seekers, this caravan. The Mexican government allowed them and protected them as they transversed the whole length of their country. And now the citizens of Tijuana finally say, this is enough. You know, these people, they're not good people. They're committing crimes. Well, and that's, uh, again, I hate to call it a good thing, but I think that's having America see that it's not about, that not every Mexican supports this either. But even more so what's happened is that there have been a lot of citizen journalists down there. And so there's been a lot of unfiltered media that's come out with, again, the truth from the mouth directly of some of the folks that participate in the caravan, the truth directly from the mouth of regular citizens in Mexico and their thoughts on the situation. And so America gets to see what unfiltered media looks like as opposed to what's coming out of the corporate media. And I think that even has woken some people up to the truths beyond that. So, again, there's a side benefit there. But I think that watching them, you know, seeing that they're fully provisioned, they have clothes, they are obviously well-fed, they have all smartphones, they're not indigent people. They're provisioned by somebody, and I think everybody wants to know who that is. Yeah, if you can afford a, a smartphone, you're not poor. I'm sorry. You are not Pretty poor much. if you can afford a smartphone. Yeah, so, right? uh, you know, the, the claims of absolutely, and, and we see those words being used about it, that they're destitute and indigent and, you know, they're just repressed, poverty-stricken people coming up here to try to claim asylum. I think that that's not a claim that is borne out once you see the reality down there. Yeah, you know, and there's no such thing as an economic asylum. But you have, and I said this when we were watching the caravan, they were being coached. They had people there wearing these neon-colored vests that were corralling them and coaching them. And then you had attorneys all along the way telling them what to say and how to behave. And then you had the handful of children they put at the very front. Oh, but look at the babies. Look at the children. And you had maybe well, 20 kids. The rest were all military-aged men. It, it really, I mean, having spent as much time as I have over the last two years understanding what it really means to be a charitable organization and to qualify as a nonprofit in the United States, it really makes me wonder who is calculating the economic benefit and who benefits from some of these nonprofits that are down there, help, quote unquote, helping. I don't understand how it's charitable to go and coach someone how to pass an asylum test when they're really fraudulently. Uh, asserting themselves to be an asylum seeker when they're in fact an economic migrant. I don't see how that should qualify as a, as a charitable act. Furthermore, coaching, bringing this basically endless number of unlawful citizens into the United States is not benefiting the United States. And when you look at the end of it, the economics don't justify those actions. We can't support an unlimited stream of people coming from the South claiming fraudulent asylum and taking benefits or you know, being here and not necessarily economically participating. So we really should be doing the math on some of those things and understanding who benefits and where's the financial, uh, is it really charity at the end of the day? Quentin. You know, the funny know part is, in... is that we got everyone. Oh, I'm sorry, Curtis, go ahead. Oh, that's all right. I know you're in, you focus on the, um, 
the funding of the wall part of this, but do you or will you have any say in the design of the wall, or are you going to use existing um, designs? We don't expect that we'll have any say, but it does go back to an original question that was asked, which is how can we recognize donors and, and will donors be able to be recognized? So when you look at the relationship with DHS, our initial goal is get the money, make sure they're going to use it on actually building a wall and not $100,000 toilet seats, and that the construction proceeds to plan everybody's in good faith. At that point, then, we can go to the next step, which is can we put a monument that's adjacent to the border somewhere or potentially to somewheres and recognize those people who have donated and do it that way. So while we don't anticipate being involved in the actual design of the wall itself, um, we do hope that we're going to be able to, to work with them to put that monument adjacent to it and, and recognize not only the people that have donated, but the people that have been affected by illegal aliens. I mean, these uh, angel families that have been affected so much by crime and murder and rape, um, they deserve some recognition too because they're the ones who've really paid the price uh, when it comes to the open borders policies that we've had for the past few years. You know, the worst part is is that when they do encounter an illegal alien, the government has only a specific amount of time in which they could prosecute the person. And they give them the death ticket, and they say, well, you've got to show up in 90 days. But if that person disappears into a sanctuary city, they can remain here forever. Well, we just had news within the last few weeks of a sheriff uh, in Oregon who had ignored an ICE detainer request, and it turned out that the person ended up stabbing his wife. Uh, I mean, I can't think of a more personal and direct way that they could be impacted by their lack of enforcement of these policies. And I just posted an article on our Twitter account before the call about one in uh, in Texas, I think, who shot a store clerk and killed them that had already been deported once. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Jeff Sessions pointed out that these are all preventable crimes. And yet here we have aliens on a regular basis that we've seen deported two, three, four times, come right back into the country. They're committing more crimes. And if I was an ICE agent, I would be frustrated as heck because I would see my work go to naught when we haven't got a secure border and we deport them and they simply come right back. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, we also have police uh, departments that actually hamstring the officers on the street. And I understand now Phoenix has joined the crowd where the officers uh. are ordered to not ask if someone is here illegally. And I was so frustrated because I was a cop under uh, uh, Giuliani. And believe it or not, Giuliani, the law enforcement you know, mayor, ordered us to not ask that question. We were not allowed to notify ICE if we knew we had an illegal alien in our hands. Uh, we found ways around it, <laughs> but it, right. it really hamstrings law enforcement, and then it puts the public at risk. I don't understand how they can call themselves a law enforcement organization if they refuse to enforce our immigration laws. And in fact, it's interesting because I've had many conversations with police officers and I've asked them about enforcing laws that they felt were unconstitutional. And I was told, we enforce the laws that you allow your legislators to pass. And if that's the case, then that says that the law enforcement officer does not have that, the opportunity to decide which laws they want to enforce at the time they see someone committing a crime, right? They either prosecute the crime or not, or arrest for the, the violation or not. And, you know, that's an instance, in my opinion, of the law enforcement taking it too far. Exactly, and it comes from the bosses, not from the guys and gals there on the street. Oh, true, yeah. You know, yeah. When we used to, 
we swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America as well as the Constitution of that state. So we are sworn to uphold the law, and yet we are being ordered to not do that. And I, I don't know if today, in today's day and age, if I could ever do that job again because of the way they have been hamstringing, hamstringing uh, the guys and gals on the beat. Well, and that's an interesting aspect of it, because when you look at securing the border as a whole, as I mentioned earlier, it's really three things. It's technology, it's manpower, and it's the border wall. And I think that many of those organizations, whether it's CBP at the border or it's those border sheriffs I mentioned or even the civilian organizations, they have a tough time maintaining or attracting and maintaining personnel down there as well. And there are plenty of reasons why, from a geographical standpoint and so forth, a lot of those places are remote. They don't have Wi-Fi and high-speed Internet access, but... In general, it's, there's a morale problem, too. And I think when you, when you go down there and you want to enforce the laws and then you find out that either they're stopping you from doing it or, you know, they're half-heartedly enforcing things, I think people's careers end up shorter than they ought to be um, for the reasons you described there. Uh, well, we have a, a response in the chat room from our friend Vorp because uh, when you said that we are mandated to enforce the law, there are always areas of gray that you can turn around and say, all right, fine, I got you for grand larceny auto, but let's just say you're in possession of stolen property because you may feel <clears throat> bad for the guy that you arrested. There are gray areas where we're giving leeway, so yes, we do have morals on it. And if any of, any boss were to tell me to execute a citizen, that boss would be arrested because then he's in, he's inciting murder. So the cops, the guys and the gals in the street, yes, they're under a tough, tough circumstances today where they have to enforce the laws and still be a good person. Absolutely. You know, Annie, well, what, I think- I, what, I, what I don't understand when it comes to that, you know, enforcing the law, how do these mayors of these cities, of sanctuary cities, get away with this? You know, you would think that the federal government would just march in there and put them under arrest. Yeah. It's it's tough for me to say. I've never been in that circumstance. Um, But I know the guys and gals that I worked with, if we were ordered to go in and do a mass arrest of innocent civilians, I think a lot of us would have been handing in our guns and shields and walking off the job. Honestly. You, You cannot follow an unlawful order. The same way the military cannot follow an unlawful order. So it's it's not the guys and gals on the street. It's the hierarchy higher up. It comes up from the government issuing the orders to the department, the department then foolishly carrying those orders out instead of saying, no, you're asking me to violate the law. So when you have a bad boy, then you have bad circumstances. Yeah, I'm talking about the the mayors. I'm talking about the politicians that, you know, um, instigate these these um, acts against, you know, the laws of our land. They're the ones that should be arrested. Those are the ones that should be held accountable and answer for, you know, the things that, that they are doing, like like just, you know, ignoring our laws, you know, by coming up with sanctuary cities, which are, as far as I know, illegal. Yeah. They are. And this is something that you have to deal with here, Quentin, because you want to help secure the borders. But there's 50 states and 50 states have all uh, international ports of entry, be it an airport or or a seaport. Absolutely. And there are many people that make an argument about visa overstays being perhaps a larger problem than this. 
Um, I think that from the standpoint of what has America's attention right now is securing our southern border. I rarely hear, and I, it may be that I just don't hear about it, but we don't seem to hear about crimes being committed by visa overstays, but we do seem to hear about crimes being committed on a regular basis by people who've been deported once or more times um, and came in through the southern border. So from that standpoint, I think, and the foundation thinks that securing the southern border is a number one priority. Once we do that, then the sanctuary cities come next, because again, there's no point in deporting the people that are there being san- uh, given sanctuary if they're just simply going to walk right back across the border. But the visa overstays and the people coming in through the airports is a key thing. Uh, one way that will be helpful is that the, there was just recently a biometric organization, and forgive me for not knowing the full name, but within DHS, there was a, a new organization for biometric security brought up. And we're hearing that even within these caravans that they're taking biometrics for these people uh, that are coming north. And for the asylum claimants, they're taking biometric markers, whether it's DNA or fingerprints or what, you know, facial recognition. And so that will help not only at the southern border with identifying repeat crossers, but it will also help at the airports because we'll know if they're coming in from those angles as well. So hopefully that organization within DHS will give us yet another layer of security that covers all of those areas, whether it's a a port in New York City where a boat comes in, or it's any one of our airports, or even the northern borders if they happen to come in from Canada. Yeah, well, we're also finding that these are not all people from just Guatemala or Honduras or Mexico. Uh, Last month, I believe, the Mexican government arrested 100 ISIS uh, fighters within these caravans. Uh, we're now finding that people from Bangladesh and other Middle Eastern and ISIS favoring countries are are within the crowd. Well, there's all sorts of things like that. Uh, the term special interest aliens, I think, is one that Amer- more Americans should be familiar with, because if we know that we can come in easily through the southern border, then that's a route that I'm going to take rather than try to come in through an airport which has much tighter controls and I'm going to be far less likely to th- slip through undetected. And we see on a regular basis, in fact, one of the largest complaints that we hear from CBP agents directly is that the, we don't pay attention to the number of people that are there that are not Mexicans uh, or even Central Americans, for that matter. But they are from Asia and they are potentially associated with terrorist organizations. There's a whole protocol for special interest aliens. And the biggest challenge with these caravans is that everybody pays attention to Tijuana and where the caravan is. And we have fewer resources to protect those other sparse areas. So there's, what's more important is what's sneaking through while we're distracted here. And we don't have the resources to cover the whole rest of the border. No, and that's why it's important now that we we find a way to fund the wall, which is what your organization is all about. And one of the problems I've been hearing with actually building the wall is private property and Native American reservations on there. Are you finding difficulty with this, or are you able to work with them? What's going on with private property? Well, we've got letters out to a couple of private property owners. You know, most of them want to have their property secured. For example, the Chilton ranchers that were on Fox News not long ago, uh, there were a number of videos made of people couriering drugs through their property, and they have that large ranch that's right on the Arizona border. They can't wait for someone to build on their property. On the other hand, a lot of the Texas border is on the Rio Grande River, and those ranchers use the river for watering their cattle and for irrigating their crops. And so they're interested in finding out how are you going to maintain access to the river for me while you secure it, uh, the border. So there is a little bit of contention there, but ultimately their, their goal is to be safe in their property and their, and their households. And so they're looking for a solution. And in each, I mean, you almost have to look at it on a mile by mile basis because to your point, there's private lands, there's public lands, there's Indian reservation lands. So each of those have to be uh, negotiated individually. But ultimately, everybody wants a secure border. And so 
they'll come around to it. It's just a matter of figuring out the best solutions. Well, we got a question from our Canadian friend, Kel, in the chat room. She wants to know what you think about Trudeau and his open border policy. <laughs> well, I, the best thing I can say is that one. I've done – yeah, exactly. Um, a country that doesn't have borders isn't a country. It's just simply a geographical feature on a map. What makes us a country is the fact that we have a geographical limitation to where it is, and everyone who's inside that geographical limitation is a citizen of that. Or you, you get the point. I mean, we all we're here as Americans, and the borders and the definition of our country is what that is. Um, I don't think any country can survive unlimited immigration, and the concept of just migration as a human right, I think, is is a bit preposterous because otherwise governments can't have any way to manage the number of people that are in claiming benefits who should be taxed, who isn't, all that sort of thing. One of the things that happened about a week ago was that I challenged someone to give me a number, how many people should be able to come and claim asylum from the South. And we recently saw an article or or some research by Yale that indicated that there's probably about 22 million uh, people here unlawfully at this point in time, which is much higher than estimates we'd seen before. The population of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala is just about 25, 26 million. So we have almost the entire population of those three countries resident in our country illegally. And, I mean, when, what number would you possibly put on it that you could have? I mean, when 100% more of them come north, what will be left there? It's, well, it's, it's like in uh, so, Dearborn, uh, Michigan. You've got more Somalis in Dearborn, Michigan than you have in Somalia. How many people can we allow within the border before the country begins to implode? Right. The study of economics is based on the fact that we have limited resources. And so by that, we have to manage it. I think that when you look at an open borders policy, it creates an unmanaged commons where simply anyone can come and and take advantage of what resources exist. There is a finite limit. And so we cannot take unlimited immigration. It's just how it is. Yeah, well, we have now someone like Kamala Harris, you know, an elected official, who wants to destroy ICE and compares them to the KKK. You know, what do you do when you have to deal with an elected official like that? Well, we, I, so we cannot really participate in campaign activities, so I'm not going to speak any individual, but – from the standpoint of comparing the KKK to ICE, it's unconscionable. ICE is enforcing laws within the country. The KKK was specifically illegal and was doing the opposite of that. So I think that it's disingenuous. In a way, it's the same as trying to compare the border wall to the Berlin Wall, because the border wall was intended is intended to keep people out, whereas the Berlin Wall was intended to keep people in. They're the exact opposite of each other. And so that's the same thing as this comparison here. She further tried to say that ICE was intimidating people or making them fearful within their country, and I would purport that anyone who's here unlawfully should be fearful of being deported. That's the point of it. And so, you know, I don't think that uh, anything that ICE does is out of line in that regard. And I think that associating um, trying to disband ICE with the political party should be a bad idea because I can't imagine that American citizens would not be interested in having our laws enforced, but that's just me. You know, we're at a record number of unemployment, and we still keep on hearing. Uh, you hear from Chamber of Commerce, you hear from large manufacturers. We need these migrants in here so they can fill the jobs. But that's not really true. We have enough jobs for Americans that are here already. So many people have dropped off the work roles under the Obama administration that if we just pulled them back into the work role, we can fill every single job we have. 
that's a <laughs> yes. The well, we see that there's record rates of employment around the country, and that's an awesome thing to see. And the Hispanic population of legal citizens and the black American population of legal citizens are beneficiaries to that because they're seeing their employment at record rates, which is awesome for all of America. But I think, again, it's disingenuous to argue that we need them because they're doing jobs Americans won't do, because I don't see specific jobs that Americans won't do. Um, the, the amount of money that people get paid is the amount of money that people get paid. And when they come in here to be legal citizens, they're going to want to get paid amount, the same amount of money that American citizens do. So either, on the one hand, you have illegal aliens coming in and being paid under minimum wage as a way for these companies to save money on their labor – or they become American citizens and make as much as everybody else does. If we won't do the job because the employer is not interested in paying minimum wage for it, then how is it uh, – that's not legal, right? I mean, they have to be employed legally. So it's funny to see that some of the same people that argue against corporations having exorbitant profits and so forth are arguing on behalf of those corporations, paying people under the table or employing illegal aliens to save costs when that's not legal and it's not – I mean, it's exactly the thing that they are claiming corporations are evil for doing. So it's almost arguing out of both sides of your mouth. It is. And, you know, we had the H-1B-1 visa, whatever they are now, these, these visas where you bring workers in. And originally it, companies were told you have to offer that job to an American first. And if an American is not available for that job, then you can bring someone in on these visas. Uh, it backfired because uh, you had companies such as GE and Disney World uh, and several others that turned around to the American worker and said, well, you're going to have to train this visa worker. And when you're done, they're going to take your job over. So we're letting you go. And if you have anything to say, complain about that, uh, you're going to lose your severance package. So from both ends of the system, it's being gained. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, that's just, that's where capitalism does go wrong slightly. And ultimately, we need to look at what the motivations are of some of these employers. But um, again, it's not that there aren't Americans skilled to do the job. It's that they can find people that were willing to do it for less. And just to simply hire different people to roll down wages, no matter where they come from, is, has long been illegal, to be quite honest. And so we need to look at better enforcement of that. But to, I think that some of those companies that did that to their workers got rightly thrown uh, in the mud by the press and by the people that were working there. And I think it was a good eye-opener for a lot of us to see that starting to happen. But um, there are some companies that are probably exploiting our H-1 and H-2B visas uh, to a good extent, and I hope that the enforcement happens on those companies because they deserve it. Well, you know, there's another area. to talk about. There's another area we haven't really discussed at length, and that's the drain on our medical systems, our schools. Mm -hmm. And our social services, when we get these mass influx of people from out of this country, and um, it's it's a drain economically, you know, and that in itself is is good enough a reason to me to stem the tide of those coming in. I was surprised in looking at our Twitter following uh, that it's extremely overweight when it comes to healthcare professionals. And so that tells me that the healthcare industry at large is extremely interested in a solution to this problem. And across the country, not just at the border, but across the country, they're constantly dealing with 
patients who are not properly secured in the country and they're on benefits and they're there doing things like going to the emergency room for things that don't belong in the emergency room and in other ways, you know, not using the system properly or overloading it with people that shouldn't even be here in the first place. And so the people that are legal citizens can't get the services that they need. Um, I think that's one of the huge costs that people don't really talk about. And the interesting thing, when you look at the return on securing the border, there's a number that's been thrown around. Uh, it came out of the uh, fair immigration not long ago, about 113, 114 billion that it costs us on an annual basis for uh, illegal aliens. Since then, had that study by Yale that said that there's probably more like 22 million aliens in the country. And so that number itself may be half of what it actually is. I mean, we could be spending more than $200 billion a year providing services to people who shouldn't be here in the first place. And when you look at the cost of the wall, as you mentioned, $25 billion is the estimate that we see that's got the most real, the most reality behind it. We would pay that off in an eighth of a year. I mean, it, it's, it's a no-brainer to do this. Every day we don't do it, it costs us money. And yet Congress wants to use it as a reason why we should elect them so that they, you know, they campaign on it and then nothing ever happens. Oh, but those poor uh, indigent migrants that are coming across this caravan, how dare you? You're racist. You're sexist. You're, you're a mis- mis- I can't even pronounce that word. Uh, but you're <laughs> so awful because we want our country secure. And yet if you sneak across the border in North Korea or China, what's the first thing that happens? You're thrown in a, in a prison camp. Uh, you can't do that anywhere else. So why do they mandate we as Americans must ha- be the only country – well, outside of now Canada, that must have open borders. It makes no sense. Well, I mean, there are whole organizations designed to allow mass migration and so forth. So I don't know that they're saying America should be the only country with open borders. I think they would like to get rid of borders across the globe. But in general, I mean, there is no specific race which is illegal alien. And as we talked about, there's people coming from the Middle East. The Chinese have created functionally a tourism industry of come here and have an anchor baby. So uh, it has nothing to do with any particular race. It has everything to do with enforcing the laws of our country as written. If we want to change the laws, that's great. There's a process for that. But the laws as they stand today are such that you can't do some of those things. And so that's, I think, what, what we could agree on as a country is enforce the laws as written. Change them if you want. That's great. But, you know, we have those laws here to, to really specify what's right and wrong. When it comes to the, the people coming here and having babies immediately, I mean, the impact on the healthcare system of that is – uh, one of the greatest ones, you know, with, with these uh, birth hotels and so forth that we're hearing about in San Diego. I mean, that is, needs to be stopped. And I think it was great of President Trump to uh, offer an executive um, – uh, you get the point – the executive uh, summary or, or executive order, forgive me, of um, stopping that anchor babies because that was, again, an issue that we needed to have brought to the forefront of the country. That, that's a big problem for us. Oh, that it is. And as I have in the show description, I wrote that under Article 4, Section 4, Clause 2 of the Constitution, we have a guarantee against invasion. And that these, this encouragement of illegals uh, and terrorists and drugs and human trafficking and gags uh, is incited by counter-constitutional entities. This is an invasion. Whether it's coming over our southern border or through other ports of entry, it is an invasion. And I, I pointed out many times on the show, ever since the caravan started to appear, look at the real people in the caravan. I would say 90% of them, easily, are military-aged men in perfect health. And then you had the, I called them the corralers, that were wearing the neon vests, 
that were actually hurting them and then doing the photo ops with the kids, which were only a handful, putting them up front, all oh, these poor babies walking all these miles. And yet, miraculously, oh, they're not being put in charter buses, but all these buses began to show up to bring them up to the water here. It is staged. It is so planned. And I ask you, I ask Mike, you know, who's funding this? Someone is funding this. Mm-hmm. Well, as stated, I mean, there are many organizations that are have an interest in open borders and an open society, and I think that it's important for all of America to understand who those organizations are and what, what they're about. Um, they're obviously well-funded, and putting these sorts of things together is, uh, is bad news for us. I think the good news is that we many of us have seen through it, and many of us have seen the propaganda value of some of those videos, and when you look at, again, the independent media that's been covering this and seeing what, what they have when they're getting the participants in the caravans to come out and have conversations that aren't um, prompted and aren't coached and are about the reality of why they're moving. We see that the opposite of what we're being told is true. That again, they are, they have all the clothing that they need. They have backpacks full of whatever that are brand new. They have shoes that are perfectly fine. They're well-fed. I mean, these are not refugees. And they're not so an actual quote an invading army. Yeah. But now, by almost you know, any definition. By almost under, any definition is an invasion. Coming under fire because he had the executive order, which a judge down in California just overruled, uh, where he's saying that. that, you know, you need to come into a legal port of entry and you know, economic is not an asylum. You know, he narrowly defined it and saying you've got to come across the border at a legal point. So instead what they do, they rushed one of the checkpoints, thinking that they can overwhelm it and crush it and then just flow in. But that got stopped. Right. Well, again, it goes back to, is, your, is the argument genuine? Are they genuinely seeking asylum or are they looking to defraud our asylum system? And I'm afraid that it's much more often the latter, that they're not genuine asylum seekers. We need to understand as a country and come to an agreement on what it is to, be, to claim asylum. Simply because you're poor doesn't mean you can come here and claim asylum. Simply because your country in general is violent doesn't mean that you can come here and claim asylum. I live in Baltimore City where the mayor's on the radio or TV almost every weekend asking for people to stop shooting each other, please. It's, look at Chicago, the violence right there. Where do they go seek asylum? Because it seems to me that their, country, their cities are more violent than Honduras and more violent than Guatemala. Furthermore, if New York City was being bombed by Russia right now, I wouldn't even hear the bombs, and I wouldn't be able to seek asylum somewhere else because of New York being bombed. And it seems like people think that the entire country there is under this massive amount of violence, but it's not. It's in particular areas. And even if it was in Baltimore City, I could move to Carroll County and be perfectly safe there. I don't see why I would need to go to Canada and request asylum at the Canadian border because Baltimore's got some violence downtown. And so I think we should put that in perspective when we look at what reasons these folks are using to come here and claim asylum. Move to the next town over if gangs have taken over your town. How about you march to your town hall and clean out your town hall of the corrupt officials there before you come here and potentially half of the people in the gang are inside your caravan because we have no idea who's in there and what gangs they're in yet. Uh, I mean, it, the whole thing is preposterous, to be quite honest. Oh, actually, um, well, I'm looking at the clock. We're down to our last seven and a half minutes. Uh, but Sam oh. Adams, one of our founding fathers, had mentioned that all government is local, which is what you're actually 
a proponent of uh, because we mm-hmm. need to because we are the grassroots. You are the grassroots. My listeners are all the grassroots. So we need to uh, take our government back, and it has to start at the local levels, your city, town, or county councils, your school boards. And you have to put people in because once you get them into the local councils, then they go up for state government, from state government to federal government. And we have to put people of like mind that want to see our country secure. And that's what you're about. Oh, absolutely. I think everyone should be happy about the participation that we had in the midterm elections in terms of the volume of voters that went and voted in what we would consider to be an off election. And it shows that people are starting to get interested in this. And I think that will impact local politics. Um, but your point's absolutely spot on. You know, ultimately, it comes down to what my local education board decides about our schools in this county and what our town council decides about what they will or won't accept. And certainly when it comes down to sanctuary city policies, those are local that's local politics. And if the local uh, citizens don't want that to go on, then they should be the ones removing those local elected officials if the federal government won't come in and make arrests. Now, that's the whole problem. We, we need laws enforced. So the next time your mayor goes on the radio or tells the public, you know, stop shooting each other, you have to turn around and say, I don't know who the mayor is, Mr. or Mrs. You go, Mr. Mayor, uh, how about having our laws enforced, those illegals, guns and the illegal aliens off our streets. Just enforce the law yep. and the violence will stop. Just enforce the law. You got it. <laughs> so your, your website is fundthewall.com. Uh, it's an excellent website. I tell people to go there, donate five bucks, even if it's just a buck, any little bit will help. And then we can get yep. supplies and, and things over to the sheriff offices individually, whatever they need, whether it be a firearm, boots, night vision goggles, and also physically help to build the wall. What you do is absolutely excellent, uh, Quentin, and I'd love to have you back on again. i got to know what's oh, going yeah, on. Thank you very much. Absolutely. We appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to speaking with you again. All right. I Take just care. have one last question. When you started this, this one project, just one last question, did you foresee all the problems that you would have, all the complexities or all the moving parts, or is just you just went and hit the ground uh, running and whatever came, came? Well, there was a lot to consider. I mean, even to the extent of me having to make myself a public figure in the sense of being the the figurehead of this organization was a challenge enough because, of course, half the country is going to hate me. But um, it's something that needed to be done, and we knew that there was going to be opposition and there would be support. And we've seen the support far outweigh the opposition, so that's been very rewarding. Um, In terms of the mechanisms, I mean, obviously, if you're going to put yourself out there for the country and say we want to raise funds for such a big project – that we're going to face all sorts of scrutiny, all sorts of criticism, and we invite it. I mean, we've had no choice but to make uh, ourselves as transparent as possible, not just from being a nonprofit, but from the standpoint that we know that Americans are going to be skeptical, even ones who support it. So we're an open book when it comes to that. And, uh, you know, we're just looking forward to proving ourselves to the country and showing that this can be done in this way, because it's, it's the only way left to do it, really, at this point. Well, God bless you for all the hard work you do, Quentin. And I look forward to talking with you again. And thank Kat for uh, introducing you to me and having you on the show here. Will do. Thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. You too. You too. All right. Check it out. Fundthewall.com. There's a link up on the show page. Uh, Just click on it. Donate five bucks. Come on, guys. Let's get that wall built. Let's get the equipment we need to the sheriff's office. Uh, We're going to be back here on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. I've forgotten it's the day after Thanksgiving when I scheduled this. But we're going to have Sergeant First Class Rich Stasekel and his wife Megan on the show. And uh, 
it's going to be about what's going on with him. Uh, the VA misdiagnosed him, and once again, we have a vet that is dying because of the VA abuse uh, that he had to undergo. So we have a lot to say that we're thankful for, and we'll have Sergeant First Class Rich with us with his wife, Megan, on Friday. Uh, we do have, later on this month, Corey Lewandowski will be on because he's got a new book coming out in two weeks. So his agent is sending me a press copy so I can read it before the interview. Uh, so Corey Lewandowski is going to be on with us. I think it's December 7th. I have to double-check uh, in a couple of weeks. But that's all we got here, Curtis. I want to thank everyone that was uh, in the chat room participating as well as up on uh, Facebook and YouTube. I'm trying to watch all of the, the chats and all the other different areas. So sometimes <laughs> if you see me on the camera, my head's swiveling. And that's what I'm doing. But I want to thank all for participation. You guys are great. Curtis, I'll be speaking with you, and you have a great Thanksgiving. Give Carolyn a hug. Yeah, you too, and um, be safe out there, all of y'all. Absolutely. So I'll leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So everyone have a very blessed and safe Thanksgiving out there, and we'll see you on the other side. Till then, I say good night and God bless.